What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today on China Corner Office, a podcast powered by SubChina, the New York-based news and information platform that helps the West read China between the lines. I'm Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's Business School, and today's episode features a discussion with Xavier Naval, who spent about 15 years at the head of a vegetable supply company in China and has many fascinating stories to tell about the ups and downs of doing business in China. Those of you who've been to China in recent decades have no doubt seen the growing ubiquity of U.S.-based fast food restaurants such as McDonald's, KFC, and Starbucks. But you may not have thought in detail about their supply chains and how China may have unique challenges in this regard. While in the U.S. Much agricultural production is in large, consolidated farms. This is not the case in China, where there are about 500 million small farmers that each have a very small plot of land. How do these large chains with expansive operations all throughout China get the raw materials and ingredients they need for their offerings from such a dispersed system? Enter Xavier who founded and ran a firm that filled this market void and has recently written about his experiences in a candid and revealing book titled The Lettuce Diaries, How a Frenchman Found Gold Growing Vegetables in China. The book has a variety of entertaining examples and anecdotes that provide much insight into China and its business environment, and I highly recommend it. Two things I really appreciated about Xavier's approach is that instead of following the formula of many management books that explicitly list a number of key takeaways for readers, Xavier follows more of a narrative format where he draws out revealing stories from his on-the-ground experience. And he is quite open as well in many cases to discuss how the ideas he had initially failed or he ran into problems, which is also rare in these type of books. So we need really a lot more types of books like Lettuce Diaries that expose the complexity of business in China in this way. Some of the key topics we discuss are the challenges of different standards and taste across national and cultural borders. For instance, while bag salads worked well in the U.S. and EU, it's important to know why they didn't in China. 
Also telling are stories such as challenges of supplying broccoli produced in China to Japanese consumers and also a telling disaster with green onions. As noted, the agricultural sector in China is highly dispersed, leading to complex supply chains with at times many middlemen. One well-known case in this regard was exposed in the 2008 milk powder scandal, which we discuss, and also some of the government reforms to prevent that from happening in the future. We discuss as well this issue of middlemen in the produce environment specifically, and how Xavier has worked to treat farmers fairly while also meeting his customers' quality needs. As he reflects, I tried to replicate California and China, and it ended up being a disaster. And there is much to learn about the system he and his firm ended up creating. You know, at times the book is a real page turner. For instance, at one instance, one of his top employees attempted to stage a coup and take over management of the company from from Xavier. Uh, And he has a lot of insights, which we discuss into managing a Chinese workforce. While his firm had 1,500 total employees, he was the only non-Chinese. A final topic of discussion is one of optimism for the agricultural sector and farmers in China. While one possible path as China develops is more of a California model where there's increasing scale, what has incurred instead is smaller farmers are now able to sell their produce directly through platforms like Pindodo. We discuss how China is leading in the digital grocery space, which Xavier says also reinforces another lesson he learned that consumer retail in China is not going to follow the U.S. model. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy the show. Xavier, welcome to China Corner Office. I'm glad to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, I'm so excited to to discuss your book, The Lettuce Diaries. I mean, having read it in the last few days, I mean, it's chock full of such interesting stories and experience from, I think, about 20 years of time on the ground in the sort of food service and vegetable uh, industry in, in China. Super interesting. You know, one of the things I'd like to start with, though, is how different products vary across different countries, how different vegetables may, may vary as well. To be honest, one of the things that I found really interesting is your interest in selling salads to the Chinese. I'm someone in America, I like actually eating salads. When I go to China, I really don't eat them because I don't see them that often. So I'd love to start there and really, you know, would love to hear about how you thought about selling salads to Chinese and then how you how you're able to do this, how you're able to convince them to eat salads. Yeah, so that's a good question that that uh, creates some pain every time somebody asks it uh, from me. Uh, I I did try to sell salad to the Chinese. I was not very successful at it. Um, I ended up uh, selling fresh foods to the Chinese. So I came to China in 97 as an expat. I, I was a finance director for a big catering company called Compass. And uh, two years into it, I started a business called Creative Food that was selling the shredded lettuce that goes into the burger of KFC. I tried a number of business models. One of them was to try to create bag salads that I sold to supermarkets in China to Chinese consumers. And very quickly, I realized that it did not work better. And the mistake I made is that I thought that um, what worked really well in the U.S., the aspects of food safety and convenience of eating cut, clean salad, 
um, would attract the Chinese consumers. Um, and it did not appeal to them. Uh, there's a number of things that I learned that we can talk about um, that, uh, that explain why it didn't work. Uh, first, they thought that a salad in a bag was not very appealing and was not very fresh. Um, two, um, they, I misunderstood that the main decision maker in buying grocery in a Chinese household was often not the young, busy working mom, but more her mother or her husband's mother who would then go and buy the salads. And when we did sell salads, it was the grandmother buying it for her grandchildren because she felt it was safe and it was nutritious for her grandchildren. So the result was we sold some salads. We did not change Chinese culinary habits and we had to pivot to focus on different type of foods and, uh, and product. Yeah, really interesting. And the book, it comes across a little, you know, um, a little bit more of a success. I thought the insight about the grandparents was really uh, interesting because how families live together in China and maybe some of the help they have is very different than the West. And I think really sort of understanding that, like, I think that one insight you did, you know, really helps sort of understand how to sell to Chinese uh, in a more effective way. So can you say a little bit more about then how, how you pivoted and some of the, you know, some of the products you ended up selling then? Yeah, so as, as you say, we did sell to hundreds of retail stores in China, our bag salads, and we learned. Um, but um, the retail sector in China is extremely fragmented and it, it was very costly to, to bring this very perishable product to uh, each individual supermarket and find out that the next day uh, the department manager was throwing them away. Um, so we could never, we, we, we had a reasonable level of success, but we could never really make it work um, on a large scale. So we we've pivoted toward our original customers, which were the big fast food chains like KFC, McDonald's, uh, Starbucks, who were buying uh, uh, shredded lettuce from us as an ingredient for their salad and we said what is it that makes it painful for them to grow and expand in China and remember at the time KFC was opening 5,000 stores a year in China Starbucks was opening 1,500 cafes a year and every time they entered a new city they didn't have any of the perishable supply they had to find a local producer they had to um, train him and that created enormous amount of risks for them. So we, we decided that we would be um, the supplier that solves them this perishable supply chain pain. And uh, we said to Starbucks, we'll do anything that is perishable in your counter. So if you buy a sandwich at Starbucks, if you buy um, even fresh bread or donuts or wraps at Starbucks, uh, it's likely that it's coming from one of the night factory the nine factories that I that I built in China. Yeah, really interesting. Can you say a little more how you built up that supply chain? So nine factories, I assume hundreds, maybe even thousands of farms that are supplying those factories to actually then bring it to Starbucks or KFC. So can you say, you know, how actually those factories were getting their the vegetable products? Yeah, so I mean, indirectly, in you had a group of roughly 30,000 farmers uh, working through creative food and, and uh, suppliers certified by creative food to serve the raw material that we processed, cleaned, put in bags and shipped to 
uh, roughly 6,000 uh, fast food outlets, uh, ranging from Pizza Hut, Subway, Starbucks, McDonald's, um, and Costa Coffee, for example. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, uh, we developed these farmers, and initially we tried to work directly with farmers, but you'll see in the book that it, it was really complicated to do so. So we stepped back a little, and we trained suppliers at the village level who would then aggregate, manage, and coordinate these farmers on our behalf. But we grew lettuce from the Inner Mongolia plateau in the summer down to Yunnan province um, or Guangdong province. So, uh, you know, anybody can cut vegetable in the back of their kitchen. It's a whole different game when you want to supply uh, KFC and McDonald's with a product 365 days a year. Because if they... You know, in percentage of their volume, we were a tiny little supplier. But if they did not have the shredded lettuce, they could not sell their burgers. And very often, that was a third of their sales. Yeah, right. That's really interesting to think about, you know, the geographic diversity with which you're sourcing. And then you mentioned these 30,000 farmers. It would be great if you could say a little bit about, I guess, how the sort of rural agriculture sector in China is organized because, you know, in the U.S., at least our listeners will be much more familiar with, you know, there's a center of the country that has these gigantic farms and there's a lot of machines that, that, that sort of harvest things and there's a lot of uniformity because of the seeds. So can you say a little bit about how agriculture is organized in China? And then part of that is how you then were able to do quality control to make sure things were meeting your standards. Yeah, so that's a very important question that you're asking because in California, uh, California in the U.S. supplies roughly 70% of the produce consumed in the U.S. Right. So you've got trucks moving from California to the East Coast every day filled with fresh uh, vegetables or fruits. California, since the late 19th century, has been extremely industrialized when it comes to farming. Uh, they were the first to have eight horses trucks pulling equipment uh, on their farm. So you've got vast track of land, uh, highly efficient, and you can grow lettuce there nearly 10 months, 11 months out of 12. So you can really invest in the farm and uh, do that. In China, there's not one region where you can grow more than three months of the year. So you're constantly moving around to try to have Mm. um, a supply around the year. Now, the other thing is that while in California, you've got industrial farms and very professional farmers and people who spray um, fertilizer with airplanes. In China, you've got roughly today 65% of the population that is urbanized that leaves you with roughly 500 million farmers. And the total arable land in China is much smaller than the land mass. So China feeds 25% of the world population with only 9% of of the world arable land. So as a result, you've got 500 million farmers splitting a very small uh, overall plot of land. And the average size of the farm in China is less than one acre. Um, And that makes it really complicated to manage because when you're buying large volume of lettuce, like I did, uh, you had to buy from tens of thousands of farmers. And if one of them did not respect the rules or bought on the side a tainted chemical, then you were exposed to uh, a food safety risk. And in my case, nobody would say on Chinese social media that um, Creative Food or Xavier Neville uh, failed at protecting the consumers. 
they would immediately say that KFC or McDonald or Starbucks did. Right. And uh, and that was something that I lived with for the many years that I run this business, this fear that at any moment something could happen. So to answer your question, we had all sorts of systems to try to control the farmers, but it was not completely foolproof. Um, and one of them was to certify suppliers at the village level who were intimate with the local community of farmers because there's lots of politics going on you know at the village level and you can't be involved in that as a foreign business and we train these people and we incentivize them properly in order to, to provide us the level of quality that we wanted and what happened is that it was a struggle for the first two or three years but once farmers realized that we never really paid the best price but we always bought. We bought every day. Mm. And for a farmer who's got vegetables in the ground, that's invaluable. Uh, because otherwise you lose it, you know, if nobody's buying it. And little by little, we built trust and people realized we were here to stay. And we built um, a reliable supply chain, probably one of the best perishable supply chain in China today. Yeah, definitely. And I can see why, you know, a place like KFC or Starbucks would really want to, you know, work with you because... I mean, that is, like you said, I mean, if there were any sort of issues, it would come down on their their brand. And I'm, mm -hmm. you know, thinking my experience in the U.S., I mean, there are frequent, maybe once a year, I'll read about uh, lettuce, romaine lettuce, having E. coli problems. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is in the U.S. where there's all, you know, I think a lot of systems that try to, you know, you know, eliminate that through these large farms in California, uh, like like you mentioned. Can you say a little bit more about how you, you know, you, you mentioned this deep relationship. Uh, did you, I don't know, test any? Were there examples of where maybe you found out some farmers weren't respecting your standards, so you had to get rid of them? I'd love to hear more, just more about how you were able to manage this process. Yeah, so, I mean, we did a number of things. We, um, uh, we, uh, created our own model farm because farmers didn't listen to anything you said. Every time you told them to buy the right fertilizer, they would say, yes, but it's expensive. So we built our own model farm where we tested different agricultural practice. And it was funny because farmers would come there, we would fly them in and they would look at the farm. They would say, hey, it's working. Let me try that next season. Um, and that was worth many, many talks. The other thing we did is beyond the normal qualification of the soils, you know, we tested the soil before starting there. We had agronomists flying, it for, flying in for key periods of the growing process. I don't want to get too technical, but, you know, they would fly in for the transplanting from the greenhouse to the open field. They would fly in for the chemical application. We would buy the chemical directly from the manufacturer and give it to the farmer or sell it to the farmer because initially we gave it to the farmer, they sold it and bought the cheap toxic one to save money. Uh, mm. So we had to sell it to them so that it would make more wow. sense for them to sell it. Yeah, wow, interesting. On this topic of, in some ways, sort of, I guess, adulterated products, um, you know, in the book, you talk a little bit about how the sort of well-known in 2008 milk uh, scandal, milk powder scandal, and that that was very much a result of the sort of middleman. So it wasn't necessarily the farmers or the, you know, the folks that were raising the cows per se, um, but actually the set of, the set of middleman. And, and this is, you know, could you comment a little bit on that and how that, you know, 
your experience with Chinese farmers and potentially middleman really shapes your understanding of that case? Yeah, so picture this environment where you've got 500 million farmers supplying foods to 900 million urban dwellers. Um, you're, the way you do that is by creating a multi-layer supply chain made of intermediaries. So in average, in the case of produce, um, the produce is going to change hands four, five times before it gets to the consumer in the city. And every time it's an opportunity for abuse of the product, uh, mechanical damage of the product, but also um, people will add stuff. So when it comes to meat, people will inject water so that the, the meat uh, mm-hmm. uh, gets heavier. Uh, if it's strawberries, uh, we've seen uh, scandals where people injected a, a dye to make it look redder. Mm. Um, in uh, in the case of vegetables, they would often dip them in water to make them weight more. So you buy a really fresh vegetable and after one day, it's all wilted. Um, so the, the, the that's the kind of issue that you have. So it, just to, re, to remind the, your audience about the San Luis scandal in 2008, um, the largest dairy processor in the world called Fonterra in New Zealand invested and took a 40% stake in the, in the number two dairy uh, infant formula uh, in China. The, the name was Sanlu. It was considered one of the safest brands for parents in China. It was considered one of the high-profile Chinese brands. And Fonterra's strategy in China was based on being the number two infant formula with Sanlu. Toward the end of 2007, we started to see reports in the media that babies were getting sick uh, drinking uh, infant formula from Sandlu, that they had kidney problems and so on. People found out that there was a, a carcinogenic, carcinogenic component called mel- melamine that was used in the milk in order to increase the protein content because that's the way the milk was uh, assessed uh, at the factory gates. And when the Fonterra CEO in China discovered that this was the case. His first reaction was, we got to recall everything and save the babies from China. And when he confronted his alter ego at Sanlu, Madame Tian, who was the chairman of Sanlu at the time, who had this reputation of being a very good entrepreneur, very kind, very empathetic, his assumption was that she would think like he did that the babies were more important than anything else. And he fundamentally fundamentally did not understand what her priorities were. From her point of view, her number one priority was to preserve this, the, 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 her company, the company that she had built and the employees that worked for this company. Second, mm-hmm. she wanted to preserve the reputation of the region that had supported her as Sandlo grew. And third, on the eve of the Beijing Olympics in August 2008, the last thing she wanted is create a huge food safety scandal that would uh, impact the image of the country. Uh, and the babies in the countryside, they came behind that list of priorities. And mm-hmm. the, the biggest mistake that they both did is that she assumed that uh, the CEO of Fonterra would never shoot himself in the f- foot by disclosing this information publicly because it would affect his company. And he right. assumed that you know, coming from a Judeo-Christian background, that she shared the same Judeo-Christian beliefs and that the babies would come first. And that resulted in Fonterra blowing the whistle on Sanlu and Madame Tien being jailed 
uh, for the rest of her life. Wow. Yeah. No. The inner, thank you for filling all those details in on that case, and also, yeah, your examples of you know the different potential adulterations that could happen, and it's so, you know, given what you mentioned about the way you monitored and tracked your farms, I can see how you know you're able to 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 avoid some of that. Maybe to to answer more directly to your question, because you were saying what were the role of the middleman in that scandal. The middlemen right. were the people who bought the milk from the farmers and added the melamine in order to increase compliance with the quality control that Sandler was running. People were not even testing for melamine because melamine was, I think, some sort of chemical right. component used in formica. Um, so it was not even something right, yeah. you would test for. Um, and um, the middlemen were the culprit. And that represented a shift in the way the Chinese government looked at food safety and supply chain back in 2008. That's a major shift because until then, the Chinese government was always trying to um, protect the peasant farmers, the, these 500 million people. Mm -hmm. And remember, they are the root of uh, what uh, the Chinese Communist Party is. Um, and right. they, uh, they shifted after 2008 and they said, this model is not sustainable. We, we got to change the way food is produced in China. And in the space of seven years following um, the scandals, China shut down thousands and thousands of small processors and made it really hard to operate dairy processing or dairy farming um, on a very small scale. Um, and today, uh, you would have nearly 70% of the milk produced in China that is coming from, I would call, state-of-the-art model farm that are as competitive as any of the farm I've seen in California. Yeah, interesting. I've actually visited in Inner Mongolia a Mungnio operation, you know, both some of their processing as well as some of the farms they buy for. And it was, you know, you sort of wonder as a foreigner what, I mean, if they're showing you actually the, re the real thing, but certainly what I saw, the scale was was totally impressive and really seemed very state of the art. And I think, you know, they actually really said that this was, partially a result of all the changes that happened in, in you know, after 2008. So that's um, that yeah, definitely it's interesting because you know, with what took a hundred years in the West to happen, this modernization of, of the dairy supply chain took less than 10 years in China. Um, wow. And it says a lot about how it's improved. Did, did, did that reform around in the sort of middleman have any influence on the work that you were doing? Did it extend to the produce sector as well at all? Yeah, so we, we did have middlemen, but we didn't have four middlemen. So we had right. one middleman usually who was uh, an aggregator at the village level who would um, be trained by us, certified by us, and then enforce our standards at the village level. And then periodically during the growing process, we would fly in agronomists to, um, to check on that. Uh, the, the, for, for example, the aggregator would lock the chemicals in a cabin <laughs> in order to prevent people from using the chemicals or the pesticide in the last two weeks before harvest, because that's when you get residues. Oh, got it. Okay. Interesting. Great. Well, thank you for filling me in on all that, you know, all the, I guess, sort of food safety and, and, and you know, intense monitoring that you're doing. I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, one of the things that I really appreciated about the book was how, you know, you had all these really nuanced and interesting stories that really, I think, shed light on 
differences in China, differences within regions in China. And sort of two that I'm that I thought was really interesting is, you know, when you were selling some produce to Japan, they were really prioritizing quality, but there were issues because in China, broccoli, broccoli, this is broccoli, broccoli was typically, typically sold by weight. And so, you know, the farmer would want to be as large as possible, which would then sacrifice some of the, you know, some of the taste. Uh, And then another case that I thought was really interesting was you had sold some green onions to KFC for some Peking duck type uh, roll-ups. And in the north, they liked them because of their snacking, but then in the south, they didn't. Can you sort of say a little bit more about those stories and, and any other things about how, you know, some of the variation that you found either internationally or within China? Yeah, I'll try not to get too technical there because I don't think anybody cares too much for the details of growing a broccoli or a green onion. But the, the, the essential uh, uh, point is that I was trying to grow broccoli to export to Japan. And I was trying to say to Japanese uh, customers, we're going to provide you the same quality as the broccolis that you're currently importing from California, which was worth $200 million at the time. But we're going to do it in China. So instead of traveling two weeks by boat to, to Japan from California, it, it would travel three days. So it, it makes for more flexibility, uh, more responsiveness to market demand. Um, so I had to meet Japanese standards that were currently met by Californian producers um, in China. And I was struggling because the farmers who were planting for us could not understand that we had to harvest the broccoli at an earlier stage when the crown was a bit smaller. Because in China, when they were selling it to the wholesale market, they were selling it by weight. And the higher the weight, the the better money they made. Uh, And I was trying to explain that we could pay a higher price for a higher quality, but they did not get it. Now, fast forward 20 years later, um, in, in the epilogue of the book, I interview a Sichuan farmer who went to university, came back to grow things the right way, and he was explaining that the region was growing navel oranges, navel blood oranges, Mm. and that by selling his oranges with the right shape, uh, the right size, uh, he'd achieved the best taste, and he was selling directly to consumers uh, through online platforms, and he was getting three times the price that that his um, local villagers we're getting by selling to the local wholesale market. So yeah, it has really changed a lot. Yeah, and I think in one of the things yeah, we definitely want to get to is the sort of you know direct farmer to consumer link through online platforms. We'll we'll definitely um, get that get there. So we'll we'll come back to that. And you were going to say the green onions. I'm sorry. Yeah. So the green onion is is a is a scene a story that I tell in the in the book about uh, KFC launching a new wrap. Uh, uh, essentially, uh, that including some green onions. And um, the sales were through the roof during the Chinese New Year period, and we could not keep up with the uh, production because we had not uh, planted enough um, at the time. And not only we had not planted enough, but we had planted the wrong variety. Um, So we had a very thick and pungent uh, green onion. And when you, when, when you, when you went to a Shanghai KFC store, you could see all these pungent green onions left on the table that, that people could not stand because uh, Shanghainese like a sweeter type of uh, cuisine. But in Beijing, where they eat green onions as a snack on the road as they walk, 
um, people loved it. Uh, so that was a, that was a funny contradiction uh, that shows you how it's really hard to judge China uh, as just one whole group of people. Yeah, that's a nice, really nice story. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy talking about is sort of management of Chinese companies, particularly, you know, expat versus more local managers. And I know that's changed a lot over time. And, and your perspective on this, I'm sure, is quite unique, you know, given you were a, you know, foreigner and perhaps the only foreigner at a company with, I think, maybe, you know, at some point, 1,500 people, which is, you know, quite a quite a unique position. And so I'd love to hear a little, some of your reflections on that. And particularly in the book, a couple of the more interesting cases uh, regard in your interactions with other senior managers. There was one person you had hired, Kevin, who tried to stage a coup, essentially. Another partner, you know, Mike, who, you know, seemed to, you, both of you worked so well together and he was able to, in some ways, do a lot of things to help you better communicate with the other Chinese staff. So so can you just reflect on your experience leading this Chinese organization and then some of these other uh, senior leaders? Yeah, and, and that's, that's a very good question because um, very often businessmen don't take the time to reflect on their failures and lessons uh, as they grow a business. So they, they usually move on to the next project. And in writing this book, I wanted to sit down and write down a bit what I did wrong. And it seems to be the one thing that resonates with a lot of readers. Uh, many of them say is that as CEOs, they've experienced the same questions and anxieties as I did. Um, and younger people say it gives us hope because um, despite all these fumblings, uh, you still ended up in a, in a reasonable success. Um, so what maybe the one thing that I draw from this uh, uh, review of my my uh, my mistakes and uh, and failures is that many of the theories and frameworks that we learn in business school in the U.S. Uh, are not validated when it comes to China, and China is full of contradictions. So we are taught to set goals and delegate and let people run and uh, and hold them accountable. The reality is that especially when I was growing the business, it's changed a lot, of course, but still still um, the case, the talent uh, are not mat mature enough to do that. And they often need a lot of hand-holding and a lot of help. I'm, I'm careful not to get into generalization because it's really mm -hmm. hard to get into generalization. You know, I was, I was in an industry that was unsophisticated. If you're working with Alibaba, or at Alibaba, I'm sure you've got lots of talents who are self-driven and resourceful. Right. But in my case, um, uh, we had to set goals, had a firm vision, but we had to still um, manage the people very carefully. Uh, Mike, who was my right hand at the time, uh, Chen Yibing, uh, would often say, Xavier, you always say to people to go to F and... Uh, they leave your office and they have no idea how to go to F. What I tell them is, we're at A, go to B, come back to me and talk to me about what you find at B. And then I'll tell you how to get mm -hmm. to C. And people felt really at ease with this way of, of working because they got a lot of guidance. Um, and But by telling them to go to F, B 
because that's what I had been told to, um, I was putting a lot of pressure on them. And they, sh they usually did not even express their anxieties or their fears of succeeding. Yeah, that was a you know very the, the the stories about Mike I thought were really very insightful, and he was able to give you those those insights into the Chinese workforce. And I just want to say, you know, I so appreciated you writing the in some ways challenges that you had because so many times you read these business books and it's all you know I conquered Mount Everest, I conquered Mount Kilimanjaro, it's all this, but but that's not the reality of life, and I think it's you know there's. You know, everyone has challenges, and it's actually how you overcome those challenges that actually defines success as as a leader. And so, uh, so I'd love to hear also a little bit about your experience with with Kevin, who it was the most start. You know, in the it's about a four hundred page book, and I think that was the it was a page turner actually. Really, when when there he was sending letters to the board, and you know, then he left, and he's calling up his former friends to get them to create problems for you. So, you know, can you say a little bit about that case and and just your reflections on how it happened and and what you learned from it? Yeah, I'm still bitter about it, uh, and I'm partially responsible for what happened. Uh, the uh, so to Kevin was um, a high-level marketing executive coming from multinationals like Colgate and Kraft, and I was really proud to hire him early in in my tenure as a as a founder and CEO of the business because I convinced him to take a cut on his package and I said you'll be a partner, and um, and I just let him run. And the one thing I did not do well is holding him accountable. I just trusted him. I wanted to trust him and I trusted him. And what he did is that he recruited a lot of people from his own network. And at one point he confronted me and he said, listen, I think you're a nice guy and you're a good financier, but uh, uh, you're not the right person for this business. This business needs a Chinese CEO. He was from Hong Kong. And um, it, it requires a, a tough leader, you're not tough enough. Um, so I'll be the CEO and you'll be um, the CFO. You can be my CFO. And he started to write to the board and said, you, you got to back me and, and not back Xavier. Um, so you know, what are the lessons from that is that I was spending all my time running around raising money. And I thought my job was to secure the money for the business. I was actually not leading this business the way I should have led this business. I did not know anybody beyond uh, my relationship with Kevin. And um, I, uh, I was not creating these loyal this loyalties that you have to create in China if you want to secure the trust of your management team. If you look at the way Chinese companies are built, the, the, the leaders often create a safe space for the employees inside the company. Mm. Um, and when I say a safe space, it's because um, many of these employees come from outside the cities where you're operating. And their place of work is not just a place of work. It's often a social community. Uh, and that's very different from the U.S., where people's social community is outside of work. And the work is a dimension of their life, but it's not as prominent as mm. what it is for these younger people in China. And I did not provide that space. These pe the only people, the only person that these people could relate to was Kevin. And they did not always agree with the way he was doing things. They saw very early on what he was doing, but they did not come up to me because they did not know me. When I asserted myself, fired Kevin, 
and uh, and uh, fought him while he was trying to convince people to resign and leave the company. Um, people started to realize that I was there, that I was making decent decisions, and they started to trust me. And and it and it we formed a bond together that lasted for many years. Uh, most of the leadership team is still in place today at Creative Food when when it's now a hundred fifty million dollar business. Um, so I. I guess my biggest failure in the case of Kevin, um, and the lesson I'd like people to remember is that in China, uh, as a leader, you want to maintain several prods into the organization, and you want to be uh, very involved in many aspects of people's life uh, in a genuine way, as a way for them to feel that you care. Um, and if you do, then people will communicate with you. Uh, so the, the models and frameworks that I had learned at business school just simply did not apply. If you look at successful companies like uh, the hotpot chain Heidi Lau, which I think has a market right. cap in Singapore that is larger than Yum Brands in China with their six wow. or 7,000 restaurants, wow, Heidi Lau that. has the lowest turnover rate among their employees um, across the entire food service industry in China. Uh, they rent apartments for their employees next to the restaurant where they operate as a way to make sure that they don't have a long commute. And they don't just rent the basement unit in the compound. They rent a nice unit. Um, they'll give cash subsidies to the parents. They'll allow the employees to put their parents as dependents on their health uh, insurance. And by doing this, they're creating that safe space where people say, they genuinely care for me. Interestingly enough, Starbucks as a foreign company is now adopting a lot of the same principles. They're allowing their employees to put their parents on their health insurance. And guess what happens? The parents are saying, you're not resigning from that company. You're not leaving that company. That's a good company. They're good for us. Yeah, that's, those are great examples. And I, you know, whenever I, I, you know, before COVID every year, I would take students to China for a couple of weeks and, you know, I really like Heidi Lau's food, actually, although some Chinese folks will tell me that it's not the best hot pot necessarily. I'm not sort of can't discern it well enough. But but the practices, not just for employees, but also for consumers where, you know, you can get your nails done or your shoes shined or you get on these free snacks. Uh, and to have the students sort of experience that and then learn about some of these employee benefits, I think really changes their, their it's, a, it's a good way to actually see on the ground actually how business is actually different uh, in China. So that's, that's really... And you're right when you take the example of uh, people doing your nails while you're waiting at Heidi Lau, because the only way this type of small innovations are possible is because the culture at Heidi Lau Hadi Lao is to empower the restaurant manager to make decisions on his own without mm -hmm. going back to the headquarter. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that the way it happened is that the restaurant manager got this idea, did it right, got a lot of good feedback from customers, and they just spread it around to the rest of the organization. Now, contrast yeah. that with the classic multinational approach where the manager um, uh, in China constantly has to educate and convince people at headquarters. Uh, in a matrix organization, it's even worse. He has to not only convince the CEO, but all the different functions ahead that what he's doing in China or what he's experimenting with in China is worth considering. Um, that makes for an organization that is slower, that's less agile in the Chinese market, and as a result, um, as a result, less competitive. My strengths was 
I was not familiar with the operating environment. I did not speak good Chinese, but I could make decisions fast. And um, mm. uh, people quickly figured that uh, when I fired Kevin, I would make decisions fast if they presented their ideas in a, in a form that was easy to understand for me. So there was no long ramble. There was no indirect communication as often Chinese uh, use when they're dealing with their superior. My Chinese was not sophisticated enough for me to absorb all that. So they, they talked in bullet points and, um, mm. and they gave me their opinion. And if I thought it made sense, I would decide on the spot. There was no email, no report because I could not read a word of Chinese. Yeah, good. Yeah. Lo lo local adaption and quick decisions. I mean, that's, I think, you know, a key thing about the, the environment. Uh, uh, well, one of the other things that I thought was so telling and interesting that you talked about is the use of contracts. Um, and, you, you know, from a Western perspective, you know, if you're a farmer, I mean, you want a contract because that actually sort of guarantees in, you know, in the future, you'll be getting some payment and there's some relationship. But, you know, as I'll quote your book here, you know, and this is from Mike, he said, no peasant will ever feel bound by a contract, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't work with them. Can you say more about like the role of contracts and how like your relationships with the farmers differed um, as opposed to how it would if, you know, you were doing this business in California or in Europe somewhere? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple of uh, of layers in your questions. Um, the 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 first one is this idea that, and it's the same as the first question about the salads. This idea that what worked elsewhere is going to work in China. I came in. Right. I said the back salad category exploded in the late '90s in Europe and the US. It became a ten billion dollar category in the space of five years. I'm going to do the same in China. It was a big mistake. I underestimated the culinary habits, the traditions, uh, the way a household were structured. Same idea with the contract. I came in and I said, I'm going to do what we do in California. We're going to say to the farmers, we'll guarantee you a price and we're going to pay you a deposit and you'll focus on quality. So you focus on quality, we guarantee you the price. That's the deal. What happened is the farmers... Um, when the wholesale market was higher than my contract, they would sell to the wholesale market and invent an excuse, um, like a disease that justified that the crop has disappeared and I had to buy an emergency at a very high price from somewhere else. Um, and when the market was lower, they would knock at my door and say, hey, by the way, we've got a contract. Um, and I, I failed to understand that for a Chinese peasant farmer, uh, he's been whiplashed for centuries um, by absentee landlords, uh, agricultural reforms, uh, more recently the Cultural Revolution, and uh, or the abuse of his agricultural land that is turned into residential land by local government officials, and as a result, the Chinese farmers doesn't doesn't trust anyone. Um, he doesn't respect any contract. Um, now, that being said, I also failed to understand that the Chinese farmer uh, had a few chicken. He had a pig, he had a little bit of uh, uh, food and grain planted on the side, and that served to feed his family. When he was planting vegetable, he was gambling. So he wanted the highest price. He did not want a guaranteed price. He was willing to have a lowest price if the market was low. But every time the market was higher than the contract price, he felt, he felt that he was losing money. 
So we wow. changed the way we operated with them. We said we'll pay market price all the time, but if the quality is not there, we'll apply deductions on your contract. Hmm. And it worked. And uh, over time, we changed a bit the way the contracts were done to get closer on the spectrum to what we initially wanted to do. Um, but it happened because we had created that safe space with the farmers where they knew that we were here to stay, that we were buying regularly, and that we would not um, uh, let them down like many middlemen would. Uh, many middlemen go to China, go to a village, they say, plant this thing, I've got a fantastic market, everybody plants, and if the market is down, suddenly they disappear, they'll never buy. So the farmers, when they see, when they saw me initially, they saw that type of person. After three years and three seasons where we bought, even when the market was down, um, they started to value us. Remember, we had to put shredded lettuce in the burgers of KFC and McDonald's every day. Um, and as a right. result, we were a very reliable customer for them. What happened is that some of these farmers started to invest. They started to expand their farms. They, um, they leased out more land for themselves. And we found ourselves with a group of commercial contractors who had a vested interest in making sure that we were satisfied. Wow, interesting. Um, one other sort of tidbit in some ways of business practice that I, that I want to talk a little bit about and hear your perspective on is sabotage. So this is something as an academic that I've witnessed in, in China in ways that I've not seen it in Europe or the U.S. where, for instance, uh, someone's going out for a promotion or someone's published a paper and then a number of anonymous letters can be sent to the journal or to the promotion committee sort of saying how horrible this person is, not founded in facts, but, you know, just, you know, sending this negative information uh, in an anonymous fashion. You experienced a case like that with some of your, your finances. Uh, and then also there was a case where I guess a plastic glove ended up in some salad, which is also sort of a, you know, sort of a sabotage. Uh, can you, I just reflect a little bit on maybe why that happened um, and any sort of lessons or generalizations you've learned about um, business in China as a result of those experiences? Yeah, I'll, I'll be careful about what I say here because a Chinese friend one day at the dinner table told me, you got to stop saying the Chinese are so-and-so and the Chinese are so-and-so because I resent right. your way of generalizing uh, things. In the particular case of that uh, finance uh, executive, uh, she felt threatened because I was not happy with her work. She knew that I was probably looking for a replacement for her. And she directed the IT person in our organization who reported to her to get an automatic download of all my emails on, on, her, on her computer. Um, wow. And uh, she was screening and checking all the information I was communicating on as a way to see if I was looking for a replacement for her. Um, I, I ended up dismissing her for that. And I did it. I, did it uh, I knew from experience that if I was not doing it um, uh, in an elegant fashion, she would resent me for the loss of face that it represented and she would try to hurt me in different ways. So I, I paid her a generous compensation and I broke it down over time, over six months, uh, to make sure that if she did anything against the company, uh, she, she would lose out. Uh, the, usually people moved on, you know, for two or three months they would be really angry and then they, 
um, and then they would find a job and, and move on with their life. In her particular case, she waited until the last day uh, of the payment. I signed the check, I flew to the UK, and when I arrived in the UK with a set of investors, they all had received an email overnight um, from her accusing me of embezzlement and using all sorts of information she had collected in her emails. Um, now, I, I hesitate to say that it's a common practice, um, but that's one reason I always advise my clients uh, in China to do everything above the board. Uh, and as a, multi, as a multinational in China, you're held to a higher standard and you do not want to be blackmailed by a former employee um, similar to the, the way I was blackmailed. In my particular case, I had moved around equipment from factory to factory without keeping the books up to date. So it looked like some equipment were missing on the books of some factories and she accused me of embezzlement and stealing the equipment, which was not the case. Um, and and that's, that's really the one lesson uh, I would draw from that is that the, when you're in China, you want to adapt to the local environment, but sometimes you get caught into uh, things are changing so fast that you have to make decisions very quickly that may not be in the best interest of, of the business long term. And, and the one thing to keep in mind is to act local, but to keep global standards of transparency and ethics mm-hmm. um, uh, as a, to, to really build an enduring business. Um, so I guess that's, I don't know yeah. if I, yeah, I'm good, good, good question. Good advice. No, they, they, yeah, yeah, very good advice. Thank you. Uh, the last sort of area that I, I'd love to talk a little bit about is fast forwarding now to the present. You know, in China, this really unique um, in the world system has has developed you know where there's platforms you know pindodo is the most well known where individual farmers are able to then connect with consumers you mentioned the you know per, the farmer in in i think it was sichuan that was selling oranges and is able to get three times higher by by selling high quality oranges directly to consumers can you both describe this a bit for our listeners and then also maybe say what does the you know this sort of platform and digitalization of China, China's food chains have to say about the future of food chains, maybe in you know the U.S. or Europe. Yeah, so th- that that is that is close to my heart because we talked about the farmers and how they've been abused and whiplashed, and for many years I I I was at a loss to figure out how China would modernize uh, its farming sector with 500 million people who won't be shrunk much more than that. You know, uh, in the early 80s, China had 82% of its population in rural areas. Today, it's less than 37%. Um, it might shrink by another 10 point, but not much more than that. So you, you always have 400 to 500 million farmers in the countryside. And when you have such a fragmented uh, supply, uh, how do you get it to the consumer without using multi-layers of, um, of middlemen who all have different vested interests and may uh, cause food safety issues. Um, fast forward, as you say, to today, everybody has heard about Alibaba and JD.com and the gigantic platforms that they've built in China to reach hundreds of millions of urban consumers and bring them all sorts of goods. Um, the, this infrastructure is there. 
uh, Chinese people are buying um, using digital payment at a rate that is 60 times higher than uh, the US. Uh, they, they are buying online product uh, at a rate that is, I think uh, the US is close to 20-25% online um, groceries. Um, in China, uh, the share of online groceries exceeds 50%. Um, with this infrastructure in place, what has happened over the past three, four years is that this big digital ecosystem have pivoted toward their supply chain. And I've said, how do we connect these 500 million farmers with these 900 million um, consumers? Uh, we have the platform to reach the consumers. We just need to create the infrastructure to connect the farmers with these consumers. And as a result of that, you've had tens of billions of dollars invested in this logistics and culture and infrastructure. And it's not an isolated um, effort. Alibaba is working at it. Meituan is working at it. Um, Pinduoduo has now 780 million consumers buying produce from their platform. Um, companies like Meizai wow. or um, uh, the um, Xincheng Life uh, have raised uh, hundreds of million dollars at valuation exceeding billion dollars. Um, the, they are uh, investing huge amount of money to provide Chinese consumers with a more direct way of buying produce or food in general from the countryside. And, and that's a very interesting model because for many years I thought the solution was something that we've seen in the West, the consolidation of the farming operation in the countryside into larger corporate farm that would be easier to control. And China has done that in certain measure with the dairy industry or in general the animal husbandry industry, uh, pig raising, uh, beef, cattle, uh, poultry. Uh, but when it comes to horticulture and, um, and uh, you know, vegetables and fruits, it's much more difficult to do. It's probably still going to be hundreds of millions of, uh, of household um, farms and family farms. I've, I've yet to see a corporate farm in the horticulture sector that makes money. Um, it, it's, a, it's an issue of daily care. It's an issue of farmers not pricing the cost of their land and the cost of their labor into the price of their product, uh, which makes it difficult as a corporate competitor to, um, to compete effectively. So what, what's happening today is these hundreds of millions of farmers are increasingly able to sell to consumers via the infrastructure that has been created by this digital ecosystem. So consumers in a compound in Shanghai are now able to go online um, and group together to organize a truck to come from Sichuan and deliver directly to them. They are also able to give direct feedback to the farmer online about the quality of his produce. And in the past year, live streaming has become increasingly common to the point where farmers are shooting themselves with their mobile phone and, and wow. communicating live with the consumers who is telling them, you know what, your navel oranges arrived damaged or your navel oranges did not have the right taste. And farmers tell me, when I, in the epilogue, I talk, I talk to this farmer in Sichuan and he says, it's incredibly rewarding to be able to talk to a consumer and hear direct feedback about the quality of my product. And in a way, China is creating the farmer's market 
on a massive scale where you're directly able to give feedback to the farmer that you like, that you buy from. And he feels much more accountable and suddenly, potentially, you've got a massive reduction, disintermediation of all these middlemen who were at the heart of the food safety issues 10 years ago. So it's not there yet. Uh, Meituan, in the first quarter of 2021, announced that they would spend seven times more than last year, nearly $1.5 billion more losses into building that infrastructure. Nobody has yet proven that they can make money um, uh, with this type of uh, service. But Pinduoduo in quarter two and quarter three this year has started to turn a profit. So it shows you that with the right level of scale, they can turn a profit. And that makes me extremely optimistic because it provides the farmer with an opportunity to make more money. Um, and it provides the Chinese consumer with a path to safer, more reliable foods without losing the variety and the diversity of foods that they used to because they have 500 million farmers. Yeah, well, I think that's a great place to end on the, you know, sort of optimistic note. I mean, like you, I sort of share, you know, a place in my heart for, you know, the rural farmers and the, and the work that they're doing. Uh, also, you know, maintaining the diversity uh, of, of, you know, really high quality foodstuffs in China. I think this is something that when I started going to China a lot was from an American perspective so surprising is how both the variety and how much better the taste was. And I think if, like you mentioned, one possible path would be to consolidate, but that actually would reduce the, the diversity and in, in the, in the taste quality. So, so it's great to hear about this, you know, this system where the farmers are able to connect more directly with the consumers to really, you know, maintain that really special part and important part of uh, Chinese food supply chain. So thank you so much, uh, Xavier, for joining us on China Corner Office. You know, I think that one of the things that I really appreciated, as you noted uh, in, in your comments, that you don't just talk about the positives. I mean, you get into the challenges you've had. And I think that anyone that wants to learn about China can learn a lot about your book, but particularly people that want to do business in China, because you really lay it out there, you know, sort of the challenges you had and how you ended up overcoming those challenges to build a real successful business. So thank you very much. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. I, I on purpose, I did not want to write a how-to book uh, of doing business in China. And the best compliment I got last week is from an anonymous reader who said um, that I let the reader watch me learn. And that's what I wanted to do. You draw your own conclusions. I won't tell you the bullet points at the end of every chapter, um, but I tell you like it is. Yeah, I think that as I think about, as I teach people, you know, this journalistic dictum of show, don't tell is the way to really deepen people's learning and understanding. And you really do that very nicely in the book. So, so wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>